0: Chapter Thirteen of The Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, mikevendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Grey. Chapter Thirteen. Jonathan traveled towards the east, straight as a crow flies, Butzel's trail as he pursued Brant had been left designingly plain. Branches of young maples had been broken by the borderman. They were glaring evidences of his passage. On open ground, or through swampy meadows, he had contrived to leave other means to facilitate his comrade's progress. Bits of sumac lay strewn along the way, every red leafy branch, a bright marker of the course, crimson maple leaves served their turn, and even long-bladed ferns were scattered at intervals. Ten miles east of Fort Henry, at a point where two islands lay opposite each other. Wensell had crossed the Ohio. Jonathan removed his clothing and, tying these together to his knapsack, to the rifle, held them above the water while he swam the three narrow channels. He took up the trail again, finding here, as he expected, where Brant had joined the waiting Shawnee chief. The borderman pressed on harder to the eastward. About a the middle of the afternoon signs betokened that Wetzel and his quarry were not far in advance. Fresh imprints in the grass, crushed asters and moss, broken branches with unwithered leaves and plots of grassy ground where Jonathan saw that the blades of grass were yet springing back to the original position, proved to the borderman's practiced eye that he was close upon Wetzel. In time he came to a grove of yellow birch-trees. The ground was nearly free from brush, beautifully carpeted with flowers and ferns, and except where brushy windfalls obstructed the way, was singularly open to the gaze for several hundred yards ahead. Upon entering this wood, Wetzel's plain, intentional markings became manifest, then wavered, and finally disappeared. Jonathan pondered a moment. He concluded that the way was so open and clear, with nothing but grass and moss to mark a trail that Wetzel had simply considered it a waste of time, for perhaps the short length of this grove. Jonathan knew he was wrong after taking a dozen steps more. Wetzel's trail, known so well to him as never to be mistaken, sheared abruptly off to the left, and, after a few yards, the distance between the footsteps widened perceptibly. Then came a point where they were so far apart that they could have only been made by long leaps. On the instant the borderman knew that some unforeseen peril or urgent cause had put Wetzel to flight, and he now bent piercing eyes around the grove. Retracing his steps to where he had found the break in the trail, he followed up Brant's tracks for several rods. Not one hundred paces beyond where Wetzel had quit the pursuit were the remains of a campfire, the embers still smoldering, and a moccasin tracks of a small band of Indians, the trail of Brant and his Shawnee guide. At the others at almost right angles. The Indian, either by accident or design, had guided Brandt to a band of his fellows and thus led Wetzel almost into an ambush. Evidence was not clear, however, that the Indians had discovered the keen tracker who had run almost into their midst. While studying the forest ahead, Jonathan's mind was running over the possibilities. How close was Wetzel? Was he still in flight? at the savages an inkling of his pursuit? Or was he now working out one of his cunning tricks of woodcraft? The borderman had no other idea than that of following the trail to learn all this. Taking the desperate chances warranted under the circumstances, he walked boldly forward in his comrade's footsteps. Deep and gloomily was the forest adjoining the birch grove. It was a heavy growth of hardwood trees, interspersed with slender ash and maples which, with their scanty foliage, resembled a labyrinth of green and yellow network, like filmy dotted lace, hung on the taller, darker oaks. Jonathan felt safer in this deep wood. He could still see several rods in advance. Following the trail, he was relieved to see that Wetzel's leaps had become shorter and shorter, until they once again were about the length of a long stride. The borderman was, moreover, swinging in a curve to the northeast, This was proof that the borderman had not been pursued, but was making a wide detour to get ahead of the enemy. Five hundred yards further on, the trail turned sharply towards the birch grove in the rear. The trail was fresh. Wetzel was possibly within signal call, surely within sound of a rifle shot. But even more stirring was the certainty that Brent and his Indians were inside the circle Wetzel had made, once again in sight of the more open woodland, Jonathan crawled on his hands and knees, keeping close to the cluster of ferns until well within the eastern end of the grove. He lay for some minutes listening. A threatening silence, like the hush before a storm, permeated the wilderness. He peered out from his covert, but, owing to its location in a little hollow, he could not see far. Crawling to the nearest tree, he rose to his feet slowly, cautiously. No unnatural sight or sound arrested his attention. Repeatedly, with the acute, unsatisfied gaze of the borderman, who knew that every tree, every patch of fern, every tangled brush heap, might harbor a foe, he searched the grove with his eyes. But the curly, barked birches, the clumps of colored ferns, the bushy windfalls, kept their secrets. For the borderman, however, The whole aspect of the birch grove had changed. Over the forest was a deep calm, a gentle, barely perceptible wind sighed among the leaves like rustling silk. The far-off drowsy drum of a grouse intruded on the vast stillness. The silence of the birds betokened a message. That mysterious breathing, that beautiful life of the woods lay hushed, locked in a waiting, brooding silence far away among the somber trees, where the shade deepened into impenetrable gloom, lay immense, invisible and indefinable. A wind, a breath, a chill, terribly potent, seemed to pass over the borderman. Long experience had given him intuition of danger. As he moved slightly, with Link's eyes fixed on the grove before him, A sharp, clear, perfect bird-note broke the ominous quiet. It was like the melancholy cry of an oriole, short, deep, suggestive of lonely forest dells. By a slight variation in the short call, Jonathan recognized it as a signal from Wetzel. The borderman smiled as he realized that with all his stealth Wetzel had heard or seen him re-enter the grove. The signal was a warning to stand still or retreat. Jonathan's gaze narrowed down to the particular point whence had come the signal. Some two hundred yards ahead, in this direction, were several large trees standing in group. With one exception, they all had straight trunks. This deviated from the others in that it possessed an irregular bulging trunk, or else half-shielded the form of Wetzel. So indistinct and immovable was this irregularity that the watcher could not be certain. Out of line, somewhat, with this tree which he suspected screened his comrade, lay a large windfall, large enough to conceal in ambush a whole band of savages. Even as he gazed, a sheet of flame flashed over the cover. Crack! A loud sound followed, then the whistling zip of a bullet as it whizzed close by his head. Shawnee lead!' muttered Jonathan. Unfortunately, the tree he had selected did not hide him sufficiently. His shoulders were so wide that either one or the other was exposed affording a fine target for a marksman. A quick glance showed him a change in the knotty tree trunk. The seeming bulge was now the well-known figure of Wetzel. Jonathan dodged as some object glanced slantingly before his eyes. Twang was thud!' Three familiar and distinct sounds caused him to press hard against the tree. A tufted arrow quivered in the bark, not a foot from his head. "'Close shave! Damn that arrow shootin' Shawnee!' muttered Jonathan. "'And he ain't in the windfall, either. His eyes searched to the left for the source of this new peril. Another sheet of flame, another report from the windfall, a bullet sang close overhead, and, glancing on a branch, went harmlessly into the forest.' engines all around i guess i'd better be makin tracks jonathan said to himself peering out to learn if wetzel was still under cover he saw the tall figure straighten up a long black rifle rise to a level and become rigid a red fire belched forth followed by a puff of white smoke Bang! an indian's horrible strangely breathtaking death yell rent the silence then a chorus of plaintive howls followed by angry shouts rang through the forest Naked, painted savages darted out of the windfall toward the tree that had sheltered Wetzel. Quick as thought, Jonathan covered the foremost Indian, and with the crack of his rifle saw the Redskin drop his gun, stop in his mad run, stagger sideways, and fall. Then the borderman looked to see what had become of his ally. The cracking of the Indian's rifle told him that Wetzel had been seen by his foes with almost incredible fleetness a brown figure with long black hair streaming behind, darted in and out among the trees, flashed through the sunlit glade, and vanished in the dark depth of the forest. Jonathan turned to flee also. When he heard again the twanging of an Indian's bow, a wind smote his cheek. A shock blinded him. An excruciating pain seized upon his breast. A feathered arrow had pinned his shoulder to the tree. He raised his hand to pull it out, but, slippery with blood, it afforded a poor hold for his fingers. Violently exerting himself, with both hands he wrenched away the weapon. The flint head lacerating his flesh and scraping his shoulder bones caused sharpest agony. The pain gave way to sudden sense of giddiness. He tried to run. A dark mist veiled his sight. He stumbled and fell. Then he seemed to sink into a great darkness and knew no more. When consciousness returned to Jonathan it was night. He lay on his back and knew because of his cramped limbs that he had been securely bound. He saw the glimmer of a fire but could not raise his head. A rustling of leaves in the wind told him he was yet in the woods, and the distant rumble of a waterfall sounded familiar. He felt drowsy. His wound smarted slightly, still he did not suffer any pain. Presently he fell asleep. Broad daylight had come when again he opened his eyes. The blue sky was directly above, and before him he saw a ledge covered with dwarfed pine trees. He turned his head and saw that he was in a sort of amphitheater of about two acres in extent closed by low cliffs. A cleft in the stony wall let out a brawling brook and served, no doubt, as entrance to the place. Several rude log cabins stood on that side of the enclosure. Jonathan knew he had been brought to Bing Leggett's retreat. Voices attracted his attention, and turning his head to the other side, he saw a big Indian pacing near him, and beyond, seven savages and three white men, reclining in the shade. The powerful, dark-visaged savage near him He at once recognized as Ashbo, the Shawnee chief, and noted emissary of Bing Leggett. Of the other Indians, three were Delawares and four Shawnees, all veterans with swarthy, somber faces and glistening heads on which the scalp locks were trimmed and tufted. Their naked, muscular bodies were painted for the warpath with their strange emblems of death. A trio of white men, nearly as bronzed as their savage comrades, completed the group. One a desperate-looking outlaw. Jonathan did not know. The blond-bearded giant in the center was Leggett, steel-blue and humanized, with the expression of a free but hunted animal. A set mastiff-like jaw, brutal and coarse, individualized him. The last man was the haggard-faced Brant. I tell you, Brant, I ain't going against this engine. Leggett was saying positively, "He's a." best ready on the border and has saved me scores of time this feller's zane belongs to him and while i'd much rather see the scout knifed right here and now i won't do nothing to interfere with the shawnee's plans why does the redskin want to take him away to his village brant growled all engine vanity and pride it's engine ways and we can do nothing to change him But your boss here, you can make him put this borderman out of the way. Well, I ain't going to interfere. Anyways, Brant, the Shawnee'll make short work of the scout when he gets him among the tribe. Indians is injuns. It's a great honor for him to get Zane, and he wants his own people to figure in the finish. Quite natural, I reckon. I understand all that, but it's not safe for us. And it's courting death for Ashbow why don't he keep Zane here until you can spare more than three indians to go with him these bordermen can't be stopped you don't know them because you're new in this part of the country i've been here long as you and a-going some too i reckon replied liggett complacently but you've not been hunted until lately by these bordermen and you've had little opportunity to hear of them except from indians What can you learn from these silent redskins? I tell you, letting this fellow get out of here alive, even for an hour, is a fatal mistake. It's two full days' tramp to the Shawnee village. You don't suppose Wetzel will be afraid of four savages? Why, he sneaked right into eight of us when we were ambushed waiting for him. He killed one and then was gone like a streak. It was only a piece of pure luck we got Zane i've reason to know this wetzel this death wind as the delawares call him i've never seen him though and always i reckon i can handle him if ever i get the chance man you're crazy cried brandt he'd cut you to pieces before you'd have time to draw he could give you a tomahawk then take it away and split your head i tell you i know you remember jake deering he came from up your way. Wetzel fought Deering and Jim Gurdy together and killed them. You know how he left Gertie? I'll allow he must be a fighter, but I ain't afraid of him. That's not the question. I'm talking sense. You've got a chance now to put one of these bordermen out of the way. Do it quick. That's my advice. Brant spoke so vehemently that Leggett seemed impressed. He stroked his yellow beard and puffed thoughtfully on his pipe. Presently he addressed the Shawnee chief in the native tongue. "'Will Ashbro take five horses for his prisoner?' The Indian shook his head. "'How many will he take?' The chief strode with dignity to and fro before his captive. His dark impassive face gave no clue to his thoughts. But his lofty bearing, his measured stately walk, were indicative of great pride. Then he spoke in a deep bass, the shawnee knows the woods from the great lakes where the sun sets to the blue hills where it rises he has met the great pale-face hunters only for deathwind will ashbow trade his captive see it ain't no use said legget spreading his hands let him go he'll outwit the borderman if any redskin's able to the sooner he goes the quicker we will get back and we can go to work you ought to be satisfied to get the girl shut up interrupted brant sharply fears to me brant bein in love has kinder worked on your nerves you used to be game now you're feared of a bound and tied man who ain't got long to live i fear no man answered brant scowling darkly but i know what you don't seem to have sense enough to see if this zane gets away which is probable he and wetzel will clean up your gang Oh, ho, 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 roared Leggett, slapping his knees. Then you'd have a little chance to get in the lass, eh? Huh? All right. I've no more to say, Brandt, Raising and turning on his heel, as he passed Jonathan, he paused, saying, if I could, I'd get even with you for that punch you once gave me. As it is, I'll stop at the Shawnee Village on my way west. With the pretty lass... Interposed Bleggett, where I hope to see your scalp drying in the chief's lodge. The borderman eyed him steadily, but in silence. Words could not so well have conveyed his thought as did the cold glance of dark scorn and merciless meaning. Brand shuffled on with a curse. No coward was he. No man ever saw him flinch, but his intelligence was against him as a desperado. While such as these bordermen lived, an outlaw should never sleep, for he was a marked and doomed man. The deadly, cold-pointed flame, which scintillated in the prisoner's eyes, was only a gleam of what the border felt towards outlaws. While Jonathan was considering all he had heard, three more Shawnees entered the retreat, and were at once called aside in consultation by Ashbow. At the conclusion of this brief conference the chief advanced to Jonathan, cut the bonds around his feet, and motioned for him to rise. The prisoner complied to find himself weak and sore, but able to walk. He concluded that his wound, while very painful, was not of a serious nature, and that he would be taken at once on the march toward the Shawnee village. He was correct, for the chief led him, with the three Shawnees following, toward the outlet of the enclosure jonathan's sharp eye took in every detail of legget's rendezvous in a corral near the entrance he saw a number of fine horses and among them his sister's pony a more inaccessible natural refuge than legget's could hardly have been found in that country the entrance was a narrow opening in the wall and could be held by half a dozen against an army of besiegers it opened moreover on the side of a barren hill from which could be had good survey of the surrounding forests and plains. As Jonathan went with his captors down the hill, his hopes, which, while ever alive, had been flagging, now rose. The long journey to the Shawnee town led through an untracked wilderness. The Delaware villages lay far to the north, the Wyandotte to the west, no likelihood was there of falling in with a band of indians hunting because this region stony barren and poorly watered afforded sparse pasture for deer or bison from the prisoner's point of view this enterprise of ashbows was reckless and vainglorious cunning as the chief was he erred in one point a great warrior's only weakness love of show of pride of his achievement in indian nature this desire for fame was as strong as love of life the brave risked everything to win his eagle feathers and the matured warrior found death while keeping bright the glory of the plumes he had won wetzel was in the woods fleet as a deer fierce and fearless as a lion somewhere among those glades he trod stealthily with the ears of a doe and the eyes of a hawk, strained for sound or sight of his comrade's captors. When he found their trail, he would stick to it as the wolf to that of a bleeding bucks. The rescue would not be attempted until the right moment, even though that came within rifle-shot of the Shawnee encampment. Wonderful as his other gifts was the borderman's patience. End of Chapter 13 Chapter Fourteen of The Lost Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, mikevendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Grey. Chapter Fourteen. Good morning, Colonel Zane," said Helen cheerily, coming into the yard where the Colonel was at work. Did Will come over this way? I reckon you'll find him if you find Betty. "'replied Colonel Zane dryly. "'Come to think of it, that's true,' Helen said, laughing. "'I have a suspicion Will ran off from me this morning. "'He and Betty have gone nutting.' "'I declare, it's mean of Will,' Helen said petulantly. "'I have been wanting to go so much, and both he and Betty promised to take me.' "'Say, Helen, let me tell you something,' said the Colonel, resting on his spade and looking at her quizzically. I told them we hadn't had enough frost yet to ripen hickory nuts and chestnuts, but they went anyhow. Will did remember to say if you came along to tell you he'd bring the colored leaves you wanted. How extremely kind of him! I've a mind to follow them. Now see here, Helen, it might be a right good idea for you not to, returned the Colonel, with a twinkle and a meaning in his eye. Oh, I understand. singularly dull i've been it's this way we're mighty glad to have a fine young fellow like will come along and interest betty lord knows we had a time with her after alfred died she's just beginning to brighten up now and helen the point is that young people on the border must get married no my dear you need not laugh you'll have to find a husband same as the other girls it's not here as it was back east where a lass might have her fling so to speak and take her time choosing an unmarried girl on the border is a positive menace i saw not many years ago two first-rate youngsters wild with border fire and spirit fight and kill each other over a lass who wouldn't choose like as not if she had done so the three would have been good friends for out here we're like one big family remember this ellen and as far as betty and will are concerned you will be wise to follow our example leave them to themselves nothing else will so quickly strike fire between a boy and a girl betty and will i'm sure i'd love to see them care for each other then with big bright eyes bent gravely on him she continued my ass colonel zane who you have picked out for me there now you've said it and that's the problem i've looked over every marriageable young man in the settlement except jack of course you couldn't care for him a borderman a fighter and all that but i can't find a fellow i think quite up to you colonel zane is not a borderman such as jonathan worthy a woman's regard helen asked a little wistfully bless your heart lass yes replied colonel zane heartily People out here are not as they are back East, an educated man, polished and all that, but incapable of hard labor, or shrinking from dirt and sweat on his hands, or even blood, would not help us in the winning of the West. Plain as Jonathan is, and with his lack of schooling, he is greatly superior to the majority of young men on the frontier. But, unlettered or not, he is as fine a man as ever stepped in moccasins, or any other kind of footgear then why did you say that what you did well it's this way replied colonel zane stealing a glance at her pensive downcast face girls all like to be wooed almost every one i ever knew wanted the young man of her choice to outstrip all her admirers and then for a spell nearly die of love for her after which she'd give in now jack being a borderman a man with no occupation except scouting will never look at a girl, let alone make up to her. I imagine, my dear, it'd take some mighty tall courting to fetch home Helen Shepherd a bride. On the other hand, if some pretty and spirited lass, like, say, for instance, Helen Shepherd, would come along and just make Jack forget Indians and fighting, she'd get the finest husband in the world. True, he's wild, but only in the woods. A simpler, kinder, cleaner man cannot be found." I believe that, Colonel Zane. But where is the girl who would interest him?" Helen asked with spirit. "'These bordermen are unapproachable. Imagine a girl interesting that great, cold, stern Wetzel—all her flatteries, her wiles, the little coqueteries that might attract an ordinary man—would not be noticed by him or Jonathan, either.' "'I grant it'd not be easy, but woman was made to subjugate man and always everlastingly until the end of life here on this beautiful earth she will do it do you think jonathan and wetzel will catch brant asked helen changing the subject abruptly i'd stake my all that this year's autumn leaves will fall on brant's grave colonel zane's calm matter-of-fact coldness made helen shiver why the leaves have already begun to fall papa told me brandt had gone to join the most powerful outlaw band on the border how can these two men alone cope with savages as i've heard they do and break up such an outlaw band as Legget's? that's a question i've heard daniel boone ask about wetzel and boone though not a borderman in all the name implies was a great indian fighter i've heard old frontiersmen grown grizzled on the frontier used the same words i've been twenty years with that man yet i can't answer it jonathan of course is only a shadow of him wetzel is the type of these men who have held the frontier for us he was the first borderman and no doubt he'll be the last what if jonathan and wetzel that other men do not possess in them is united a marvelously developed woodcraft with wonderful physical powers Imagine a man having a sense, almost an animal instinct, for what is going on in the woods. Take, for instance, the fleetness of foot. That is one of the greatest factors. It is absolutely necessary to run, to get away when to hold ground would be death. Whether at home or in the woods, the bordermen retreat every day. You wouldn't think they practiced anything of the kind, would you? Well, a man can't be great in anything without keeping at it jonathan says he exercises to keep his feet light wetzel would just as soon run as walk think of the magnificent condition of these men when a dash of speed is called for when to be fleet of foot is to elude vengeance seeking indians they must travel as swiftly as the deer the zanes were all sprinters i could do something of the kind betty was fast on her feet as that old fort will testify until the logs rot isaac was fleet too and jonathan can get over the ground like a scared buck but even so wetzel can beat him goodness me helen exclaimed the colonel's buxom wife from the window don't you ever get tired of hearing eb talk of wetzel and jack and indians come in with me i venture to say my gossip will do you more good than his stories Therefore Helen went in to chat with Mrs. Zane, for she was always glad to listen to the Colonel's wife, who was so bright and pleasant, so helpful and kindly in her womanly way. In the course of their conversation, which drifted from weaving Lindsay, Mrs. Zane's occupation at the time, to the costly silks and satins of remembered days, and then to matters of more present interest, Helen spoke of Colonel Zane's hint about Will and Betty. "'Isn't it about terror?' He's the worst matchmaker you ever saw, declared the colonel's good spouse. There's no harm in that. No, indeed, it's a good thing, but he makes me laugh. And, Betty, he sets her furious. The colonel said he had designs on me. Of course he has. Dear old Eb. how'd he love to see you happily married? His heart is as big as that mountain yonder. He has given this settlement his whole life. I believe you. He has such interest, such zeal for everybody. Only the other day he was speaking to me of Mr. Mordaunt, telling how sorry he was for the Englishman and how much he'd like to help him. It does seem a pity a man of Mordaunt's blood and attainments should sink to utter worthlessness. Yes, tis a pity for any man, blood or no. And the world's full of such wrecks. I always liked that man's looks. I never had a word with him, of course but i've seen him often and something about him appealed to me i don't believe it was just his handsome face still i know women who are susceptible that way i too liked him once as a friend said helen feelingly well i'm glad he's gone gone yes he left fort henry yesterday he came to say good-bye to me and except for his pale face and trembling hands was much as he used to be in virginia Said he was going home to England, and wanted to tell me he was sorry for for all he'd done to make Papa and me suffer. Drink had broken him, he said, and surely he looked a broken man. I shook hands with him, and then slipped upstairs and cried. Poor fellow, sighed Mrs. Zane. Papa said he left Fort Pitt with one of Metzer's men as a guide. Then he didn't take the little cuss, as Eb calls his man-case. No, if i remember rightly papa said case wouldn't go i wish he had he's no addition to our village voices outside attracted their attention mrs zane glanced from the window and said there come betty and will helen went on the porch to see her cousin and betty entering the yard and colonel zane once again leaning on his spade gather any hickey nuts from birch or any other kind of trees asked the colonel grimly no replied will cheerily the shells haven't opened yet too bad the frost is so backward said colonel zane with a laugh but i can't see it makes any difference where are my leaves asked helen with a smile and a nod to betty what leaves inquired the young woman plainly mystified why the autumn leaves will promised to gather with me then changed his mind and said he'd bring them i forgot will replied a little awkwardly colonel zane coughed and then catching betty's glance which had begun to flush he plied his spade vigorously betty's face had colored warmly at her brother's first question it toned down slightly when she understood that he was not going to tease her as usual and suddenly as she looked over his head it paled white as snow "Ebb, look down the lane she cried Two tall men were approaching with labored tread, one half supporting his companion. "'Wetzel! Jack! And Jack's Mert!' cried Betty. "'My dear, be calm!' said Colonel Zane, in that quiet tone he always used during moments of excitement. He turned toward the borderman and helped Wetzel lead Jonathan up the walk into the yard. From Wetzel's clothing water ran, his long hair was disheveled, his aspect frightful, Jonathan's face was white and drawn, his buckskin honeycoat was covered with blood, and the hand, which he held tightly against his left breast, showed dark red stains. Helen shuddered, almost fainting. She leaned against the porch, too horrified to cry out, with contracting heart and a chill stealing through her veins. "'Jack! Jack!' cried Betty, in agonized appeal. "'Betty, it's nothing,' said Wetzel. "'Now, Bets, don't be scared of a little blood,' Jonathan said, with a faint smile flirting across his haggard face. "'Bring water, shears, and some linsey cloth,' added Wetzel, as Mrs. Zane came running out. "'Come inside,' cried the Colonel's wife, as she disappeared again immediately. "'No,' replied the borderman, removing his coat, and, with the assistance of his brother, he unlaced his hunting shirt, pulling it down from a wounded shoulder great gory hole gaped just beneath his left collar-bone although stricken with fear when helen saw the bronze massive shoulder the long powerful arm with its cords of muscles playing under the brown skin she felt a thrill of admiration just missed the lungs said mrs zane eb no bullet ever made that hole wetzel washed the bloody wound and placing on it a wad of leaves he took from his pocket bound up the shoulder tightly what made that hole asked colonel zane wetzel lifted the quiver of arrows jonathan had laid on the porch and selecting one handed it to the colonel the flint head and a portion of the shaft were stained with blood shawnee exclaimed colonel zane then he led wetzel aside and began conversing in low tones while jonathan with betty holding his arm ascended the steps and went within the dwelling Helen ran home and, once in her room, gave vent to her emotions. She cried because of fright, nervousness, relief, and joy. Then she bathed her face, tried to rub some color into her pale cheeks, and set about getting dinner as one in a trance. She could not forget that broad shoulder with its frightful wound. What a man Jonathan must be to receive a blow like that and live, exhausted. Almost spent had been his strength when he reached home. Yet how calm and cool he was! What would she not have given for the faint smile that shone in his eyes? For Betty? That afternoon was long for Helen. When at last supper was over, she changed her gown, and asking Will to accompany her, went down the lane toward Colonel Zane's cabin. At this hour the Colonel almost invariably could be found sitting on his doorstep, puffing a long Indian pipe, and gazing with dreamy eyes over the valley well well how sweet you look he said to helen then with a wink of his eyelid hello willie you'll find elizabeth inside with jack how is he asked helen eagerly as will with a laugh and a retort mounted the steps jack's doing splendidly He slept all day i don't think his injury amounts to much at least not for such as him or wetzel it would have finished ordinary men Bess says, if complications don't set in blood poison or something to start a fever, he'll be up shortly. Wetzel believes the two of em will be on the trail inside of a week. Did they find Brant asked Helen in a low voice. Yes, they ran him to his hole, and, as might have been expected, it was Bing Legget's camp. The Indians took Jonathan there. then Jack was captured. Colonel Zane related the events as told briefly by Wetzel that had taken place during the preceding three days the indian i saw at the spring carried that bow jonathan brought back he must have shot the arrow he was a magnificent savage he was indeed a great and a bad indian one of the craftiest spies who ever stepped in moccasins but he lies quiet now on the moss and the leaves ben liggett will never find another runner like that shawnee let's go indoors He led Helen into the large living-room, where Jonathan lay on a couch, with Betty and Will sitting beside him. The Colonel's wife and children, Silas, Zane, and several neighbors, were present. "'Here, Jack, is a lady inquiring after your health. Betts, this reminds me of the time Isaac came home wounded, after his escape from the Hurons. Strikes me he and his Indian bride should be about due here on a visit.' do forgot everyone except the wounded man lying so quiet and pale upon the couch. She looked down upon him with eyes strangely dilated and darkly bright. "'How are you?' she asked softly. "'I'm all right. Thank you, lass,' answered Jonathan. Colonel Zane contrived with inevitable skill to get Betty, Will, Silas, Bessie, and the others interested in some remarkable news he had just heard or made up, And this left Jonathan and Helen comparatively alone for the moment. The wise old colonel thought perhaps this might be the right time. He saw Helen's face as she leaned over Jonathan, and that was enough for him. He would have taxed his ingenuity to the utmost to keep the others away from the young couple. "'I was so frightened,' murmured Helen. "'Why?' asked Jonathan. "'Oh, you look so deathly the blood in that awful wound it's nothing last helen smiled down upon him whether or not the hurt amounted to anything in the borderman's opinion she knew from his weakness and his white drawn face that the strain of the march home had been fearful his dark eyes held now nothing of the coldness and glitters so natural to them they were weary almost sad she did not feel afraid of him now He lay there so helpless, his long, powerful frame as quiet as a sleeping child. Hitherto an almost indefinable antagonism in him had made itself felt, now there was only gentleness, as of a man too weary to fight longer. Helen's heart swelled with pity and tenderness and love. His weakness affected her as had never his strength with an involuntary gesture of sympathy she placed her hand softly on his jonathan looked up at her with eyes no longer blind pain had softened him for the moment he felt carried out of himself as it were and saw things differently the melting tenderness of her gaze the glowing softness of her face the beauty bewitched him and beyond that a sweet impelling gladness stirred within him and would not be denied he thrilled as her fingers lightly, timidly, touched his, and opened his broad hand to press hers closely and warmly. Lass, he whispered with a huskiness and unsteadiness unnatural to his deep voice, Helen bent her head closer to him. She saw his lips tremble and his nostrils dilate, but an unutterable sadness shaded the brightness in his eyes. "'I love you.' The low whisper reached Helen's ears. She seemed to float dreamily away to some beautiful world. With the music of those words ringing in her ears, she looked at him again. Had she been dreaming? No, his dark eyes met hers with a love that he could no longer deny. An exquisite emotion, keen, strangely sweet and strong, yet terrible with sharp pain, pulsated through her being. The revelation had been too abrupt. It was so wonderfully different from what she had ever dared hope. She lowered her head, trembling. The next moment she felt Colonel Zane's hand on her chair, and heard him say in a cheery voice, Well, well, see here, lass, you mustn't make Jack talk too much. See how white and tired he looks? End of chapter 14 chapter 15 of the last trail this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by mike vendetti mikevendetti.com the last trail by zane gray chapter 15 in 48 hours jonathan zane was up and about the cabin as though he had never been wounded the third day he walked to the spring in a week He was waiting for Wetzel, ready to go on the trail. On the eighth day of his enforced idleness, as he sat with Betty and the colonel in the yard, Wetzel appeared on the ridge east of the fort. Soon he rounded the stockade fence and came straight toward them. To Colonel Zane and Betty Wetzel's expression was terrible. The stern kindliness, the calm, tough, cold gravity of his countenance, as they usually saw it, had disappeared yet it showed no trace of his unnatural passion to pursue and slay. No doubt that terrible instinct, or lust, was at white heat, but it wore a mask of impenetrable stone-grey gloom. Wetzel spoke briefly after telling Jonathan to meet him at sunset on the following day at a point five miles up the river. He reported to the colonel that Leggett with his band had left the retreat moving southward, apparently on a marauding expedition. Then he shook hands with Colonel Zane and turned to Betty. "'Good-bye, Betty,' he said in his deep, sonorous voice. "Goodbye, bye Lou,' answered Betty slowly, as if surprised. "'God save you,' she added. He shouldered his rifle and hurried down the lane, halting before entering the thicket that bounded the clearing, to look back at the settlement. In another moment his dark figure had disappeared among the bushes. Bets, I've seen Wetzel go like that hundreds of times, though he never shook hands before. But I feel sort of queer about it now. Wasn't he strange?' Betty did not answer until Jonathan, who had started to go within, was out of hearing. Lou looked and acted the same the morning he struck Miller's trail. Betty replied in a low voice, I believe, despite his indifference to danger, he realizes that the chances are greatly against him, as they were when he began the trailing of Miller. Certain it would lead him into Gertie's camp. Then I know Lou has an affection for all of us, though it is never shown in ordinary ways. I pray he and Jack will come home safe." "'This is a bad trail they're taking up—the worst, perhaps, in border warfare,' said Colonel Zane gloomily. Did you notice how Jack's face darkened when his comrade came? Much of this borderman's life of his is due to Wetzel's influence. "'Eb, I'll tell you one thing,' returned Betty, with a flash of her old spirit. "'This is Jack's last trail.' "'What do you think so?' "'If he doesn't return, he'll be gone the way of all bordermen. But if he comes back, once more he'll never get away from Helen.' "'Ugh!' exclaimed zane venting his pleasure in characteristic indian way that night after jack came home wounded continued betty i saw him as he lay on the couch gaze at helen such a look eb she has won i hope so but i fear-i fear replied her brother gloomily if only he returns that's the thing bets be sure he sees helen before he goes away i shall try here he comes now said betty hello jack cried the colonel as his brother came out in somewhat of a hurry what have you got by george it's that blamed arrow the shawnee shot into you where are you going with it what the deuce say bets, eh betty had given him a sharp little kick the borderman looked embarrassed he hesitated and flushed evidently he would have liked to avoid his brother's question but the inquiry came direct the simulation with him was impossible. Helen wanted this, and I reckon that's where I'm going with it, he said finally, and walked away. "'Eb, you're stupid!' exclaimed Betty. "'Hang at! Who'd have thought he was going to give her that blamed bloody arrow?' As Helen ushered Jonathan for the first time into her cozy little sitting-room, her heart began to thump so hard she could hear it she had not seen him since the night he whispered the words which gave such happiness she had stayed at home thankful beyond expression to learn every day of his rapid improvement living in the sweetness of her joy and waiting for him and now as he had come so dark so grave so unlike a lover to woo that she felt a chill steal over her i'm so glad you've brought the arrow she faltered for of course coming so far means that you're well once more "'You ask me for it, and I've fetched it over. "'Tomorrow I'm off on a trail. "'I may never return from,' he answered simply, "'and his voice seemed cold. "'An immeasurable distance stretched once more between them. "'Helen's happiness slowly died. "'Thank you,' she said with a voice that was tremulous "'despite all her efforts. "'It's not much of a keepsake.' I did not ask for it as a keepsake. But because, because I wanted it, I need nothing tangible to keep alive my memory. A few words whispered to me not many days ago will suffice for remembrance. Or or did I dream them?" Bitter disappointment almost choked Helen. This was not the gentle, soft-voiced man who had said he loved her. It was the indifferent borderman again he was the embodiment of his strange, quiet woods. Once more he seemed the comrade of the cold, inscrutable Wetzel. "'No, lass, I reckon you didn't dream,' he replied. Helen swayed from sick bitterness and a suffocating sense of pain back to her old, sweet, joyous, tumultuous heart throbbing. "'Tell me if I didn't dream,' she said softly her face flashing warm again. She came close to him and looked up with all her heart in her great dark eyes and love trembling on her red lips. Calmness deserted the borderman after one glance at her. He paced the floor, twisted and clasped his hands while his eyes gleamed. "Lass, I'm only human,' he cried hoarsely, facing her again. But only for a moment did he stand before her but it was long enough for him to see her shrink a little, the gladness in her eyes giving way to uncertainty and a fugitive hope. Suddenly he began to pace the room again, and to talk incoherently. With the flow of words he gradually grew calmer, and, with something of his natural dignity, spoke more rationally. I said I loved you, and it's true. But I didn't mean to speak. I oughtn't have done it. Something made it so easy, so natural, like I'd have died before letting you know, if any idea had come to me of what I was saying. I've fought this feeling for months. I allowed myself to think of you at first, and there's the wrong. I went on a trail with your big eyes pictured in my mind, and before I'd dreamed of it, you'd crept into my heart. Life has never been the same since. That kiss, Betty said, was how you cared for me and that made me worse, only I never really believed. Today I came over here to say good-bye, expecting to hold myself well in hand, but the first glance of your eyes unmans me. Nothing can come of it, lass, nothing but trouble. Even if you cared, and I don't dare believe you do, nothing can come of it. I've my own life to live, and there's no sweetheart in it. Maybe, as Lou says, there's one in heaven. Oh, Girl, this has been hard on me. I see you always on my lonely tramps, I see your glorious eyes in the sunny fields and in the woods, at great twilight and when the stars shine brightest. They haunt me. Why oh, you're the sweetest lass who's ever tormented a man. And I love you. I love you. He turned to the window only to hear a soft, broken cry, and a flurry of skirts. A rush of wind seemed to envelop him. Then two soft, rounded arms encircled his neck, and a golden head lay on his breast. My borderman, my hero, my love. Jonathan clasped the beautiful, quivering girl to his heart. Lass, for God's sake, don't say you love me,' he implored, thrilling with the contact of her warm arms. "'Oh,' she breathed and raised her head, her radiant eyes darkly wonderful with unutterable love burned into his. He had almost pressed his lips to the sweet red one so near his when he drew back with a start and his frame straightened. "'Am I a man, or only a coward?' he muttered. "'Las, let me think. Don't believe I'm harsh, nor cold, nor nothing, except that I want to do what's right.' He leaned out of the window while Helen stood near him with a hand on his quivering shoulder when at last he turned his face was colorless white as marble and sad and set and stern lass it mustn't be i'll not ruin your life but you will if you give me up no no lass i cannot live without you you must my life is not mine to give but you love me i'm a borderman i will not live without you hush lass hush i love you jonathan breathed hard once more the tremor which seemed pitiful in such a strong man came upon him his face was gray i love you she repeated her rich voice indescribably deep and full she opened wide her arms and stood before him with heaving bosom with great eyes dark with woman's sadness passionate with woman's promise perfect in her beauty glorious in her abandonment. The borderman bowed and bent like a broken reed. Listen, she whispered, coming closer to him. Go if you must, leave me. But let this be your last trail. Come back to me. Jack, come back to me. You have had enough of this terrible life. You have won a name that will never be forgotten. You have done your duty to the border. The Indians and outlaws will be gone soon. Take the farm your brother wants you to have, and live for me. We will be happy. I shall learn to keep your home. Oh, my dear, I will recompense you for the loss of all this wild hunting and fighting. Let me persuade you as much for your sake as for mine. For you are my heart and soul and life. Go out upon your last trail, Jack. Come back to me. And let Wetzel go. Always alone? He is different. He lives only for revenge. What are these poor savages to you? You have a nobler life opening. Alas, I can't give him up. He ain't not. But give up this useless seeking of adventure that you know is half a borderman's life. Give it up, Jack. If not for your own, then for my sake. No. No, never, I can't. I won't be a coward. After all these years, I won't desert him. No, no. Do not say more, she pleaded, stealing closer to him until she was against his breast. She slipped her arms around his neck. For love and more than life, she was fighting now. Goodbye, my love. She kissed him, a long, lingering pressure of her soft, full lips on his. Dearest... Do not shame me further, dearest Jack. Come back to me, for I love you. She released him and ran sobbing from the room. Unsteady as a blind man, he groped for the door, found it, and went out. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of The Last Trail This is a LibriVox recording. All LibraVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. dot org recording by Mike Vendetti Mike Vendetti dot com The Last Trail by Zane Gray Chapter sixteen The longest day in Jonathan Zane's life, the oddest, the most terrible and complex with unintelligible emotions, was that one in which he learned that the wilderness no longer sufficed for him. He wandered through the forest like a man lost. Searching for, he knew not what. Rambling along the shady trails, he looked for that contentment which had always been his, but found it not. He plunged into the depth of deep, gloomy ravines, into the fastness of heavy-timbered hollows where the trees hid the light of day. He sought the open, grassy hillsides and roamed far over meadow and plain. Yet something always eluded him. The invisible and beautiful life of all inanimate things sang no more to his heart. The springy moss, the quavering leaf, the tell-tale bark of the trees, the limpid, misty, eddying pools under green banks, the myriads of natural objects from which he had learned so much, and the manifold joyous life around him no longer spoke with soul-satisfying faithfulness. The environment of his boyish days, of his youth and manhood, rendered not a sweetness as of old. His intelligence, sharpened by the pain of new experience, told him he had been vain to imagine that he, because he was a borderman, could escape the universal destiny of human life. Dimly he could feel the broadening, the awakening into a fuller existence. But he did not welcome this new light. He realized that men had always turned, at some time in their lives, to women even as the cypress leans toward the sun this weakening of the sterner stuff in him this softening of his heart and especially the inequitude and lack of joy and harmony in his old pursuits of the forest trails bewildered him and troubled him some thousands of times his borderman trail had been crossed yet never to his sorrow until now when it had been crossed by a woman sick at heart hurt in his pride darkly savage sad remorseful and thrilling with awakened passion all in turn he roamed the woodland unconsciously visiting the scenes where he had formerly found contentment he paused by many a shady glen and beautiful quiet glade by gray cliffs and mossy banks searching with moody eyes for the spirit which evaded him here in the green and golden woods rose before him a rugged giant rock moss-stained and gleaming with trickling water. Tangled ferns dressed in autumn's russet hue lay at the base of the green-gray cliff and circled a dark, deep pool, dotted with yellow leaves. Halfway up, the perpendicular ascent was broken by a protruding ledge upon which waved broad-leaved plants and rusty ferns. Above the cliff, sheared out with many cracks and seams in its weather-beaten front. The forest grew to the verge of the precipice a full foliaged oak and a luxuriant maple the former still fresh with its dark green leaves the latter making a vivid contrast with its pale yellow purple red and orange hues leaned far out over the bluff a mighty chestnut grasped with gnarled roots deep into the broken cliff dainty plumes of goldenrod swayed on the brink red berries amber moss and green trailing vines peeped over the edge and every little niche and cranny sported fragile ferns and pale-faced asters a second cliff higher than the first and more heavily wooded loomed above and over it sprayed a transparent film of water thin as smoke and iridescent in the sunshine far above where the glancing rill caressed the mossy cliff and shone like gleaming gold against the dark branches with their green and red-purple leaves lay the faint blue of the sky jonathan pulled on down the stream with humbler heart his favorite waterfall had denied him the gold that had gleamed there was his the sweetheart's tear the red was her lips the dark pool with its light and shades its unfathomable mystery was like her eyes he came at length to another scene of milder aspect an open glade where the dancing dimpling brook raced under dark hemlocks and where Blood-red sumac leaves and beech leaves, like flashes of sunshine, lay upon against the green. Under a leaning birch, he found a patch of purple asters, and a little apart from them, by a mossy stone, a lonely fringed gentian. Its deep color brought him the dark blue eyes that haunted him, and once again, like one possessed of an evil spirit, he wandered along the merry watercourse. But finally pain and unrest left him. When he surrendered to his love, peace returned. Though he said in his heart that Helen was not for him, he felt he did not need to torture himself by fighting against resistless power. He could love her without being a coward. He would take up his life where it had been changed and live it, carrying this bittersweet burden always. Memory now that he admitted himself conquered made a toy of him bringing the sweetness of fragrant hair and eloquent eyes and clinging arms and dewy lips a thousandfold harder to fight than pain was the seductive thought that he had but to go back to helen to feel again the charm of her presence to see the grace of her person to hear the music of her voice to have again her lips on his jonathan knew then that his trial had but begun that the pain and suffering of a borderman's broken pride and conquered spirit was nothing, that to steel his heart against the joy, the sweetness, the longing of love was everything. So a tumult raged within his heart. No bitterness nor wretchedness stabbed him as before, but a passionate yearning, born of memory and unquenchable as the fires of the sun burned there. Helen's reply to his pale excuses, to his duty, to his life, was that she loved him. The wonder of it made him weak. Was not her answer enough? I love you, three words only, but they changed the world. A beautiful girl loved him. She had kissed him, and his life could never again be the same. She had held out her arms to him, and he, cold, curlish, unfeeling brute, had let her shame herself, fighting for her happiness, for the joy that is a woman's divine right. He had been blind. He had not understood the significance of her gracious action. He had never realized until too late what it must have cost her, what heart-breaking shame and scorn his refusal brought upon her. If she ever looked tenderly at him again with those great eyes, or leaned toward him with her beautiful arms outstretched— he would fall at her feet and throw his duty to the winds, swearing his love was hers always and his life forever. So love stormed in the borderman's heart. Slowly the melancholy Indian summer day waned as Jonathan strode out of the woods into a plain beyond where he was to meet Wetzel at sunset. A smoky haze, like a purple cloud, lay upon the gently waving grass. He could not see across the stretch of prairie-land, though at this point he knew it was hardly a mile wide. With the trilling of the grasshoppers alone disturbing the serene quiet of this autumn afternoon, all nature seemed in harmony with the declining season. He stood a while, his thoughts becoming the calmer for the silence and loneliness of this breathing meadow when the shadows of the trees began to lengthen and to steal far out over the yellow grass he knew the time had come and glided out upon the plain he crossed it and sat down upon a huge stone which lay with one shelving end overhanging the river far to the west the gold-red sun too fiery for his direct gaze lost the brilliance of its under-circle behind the fringe of the wooded hill slowly the red ball sank When the last bright gleam had vanished in the dark horizon, Jonathan turned to search the wood and plain. Wetzel was to meet him at sunset. Even as his first glance swept around, a light step sounded behind him. He did not move, for that step was familiar. In another moment the tall form of Wetzel stood beside him. "'I'm about as much behind as you was ahead of time,' said Wetzel. We'll stay here for the night and be off early in the morning." Under the shelving side of the rock, and in the shade of the thicket, the bordermen built a little fire and roasted strips of deer meat. Then puffing at their long pipes, they sat for a long time in silence, while twilight let fall a dark, gray cloak over river and plain. Legged's move up the river was a blind, as I suspected he said Wetzel presently. He's not far back in the woods from here and seems to be waiting for something, or somebody. Brant and seven redskins are with him. We'd have a good chance at them in the morning. Now we've got em a long ways from their camp. So we'll wait and see what deviltry they're up to. Maybe he's waiting for some Injun band, suggested Jonathan. There's redskins in the valley and close to him but I reckon he's barking up another tree. Suppose we run into some of these engines. I'll have to take what comes, replied Wetzel, lying down on a bed of leaves. When darkness enveloped the spot, Wetzel lay wrapped in deep slumber while Jonathan sat against the rock, watching the last flickerings of the campfire. End of chapter 16 Chapter Seventeen of The Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, mikevendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Grey. Chapter Seventeen. Will and Helen hurried along the river road, beguiled by the soft beauty of the autumn morning. They ventured further from the fort than ever before. And had been suddenly brought to a realization of the fact by a crackling in the underbrush instantly their minds reverted to bears and panthers such as they had heard invested the thickets round the settlement oh will i saw a dark form stealing along the woods from tree to tree exclaimed helen in a startled whisper so did i it was an indian or i never saw one walk faster once we round the bend in the road we'll be within sight of the fort then we'll run replied will he had turned pale but maintained his composure they increased their speed and almost had come up to the curve in the road marked by dense undergrowth on both sides when the branches in the thicket swayed violently a sturdy little man armed with a musket appeared from among them avast heave ho he commanded in a low, fierce voice leveling his weapon one breeze from ye and i'll let sail this broadside "'What do you want? We have no valuables,' said Will, speaking low. Helen stared at the little man. She was speechless with terror. It flashed into her mind as soon as she recognized the red, evil face of the sailor, that he was the accomplice, upon whom Brandt had told Metzer he could rely. "'Shut up. It's not ye I want, no valuables. But this wench!' growled Case. He pushed Will around with the muzzle of the musket which action caused the young man to turn a sickly white and shrink involuntarily with fear. The hammer of the musket was raised and might fall at the slightest jar. "'For God's sake, Will, do as he says,' cried Helen, who saw murder in Case's eyes. Capture or anything was better than sacrifice of life. "'March!' ordered Case, with the musket against Will's back. Will hurriedly started forward. Jostling Helen, who had preceded him, he was forced to hurry because every few moments Case pressed the gun to his back or side. Without another word the sailor marched them swiftly along the road, which now narrowed down to a trail. His intention, no doubt, was to put as much distance between him and the fort as was possible. No more than a mile had been thus traversed when two Indians stepped into view my god my god cried will as the savages proceeded first to bind helen's arms behind her and then his in the same manner after this the journey was continued in silence the indians walking beside the prisoners and case in the rear helen was so terrified that for a long time she could not think coherently it seemed as if she had walked miles yet did not feel tired Always in front wound the narrow, leaf gird trail, and to the left the broad river gleamed at intervals through open spaces. In the thickets flocks of birds rose in the line of march. They seemed tame, and uttered plaintive notes as if in sympathy. About noon the trail led to the river bank. One of the savages disappeared in a copse of willows, and presently reappeared carrying a birch-bark canoe. Case ordered Helen and Will into the boat got in himself and the savages taking stations at bow and stern paddled out into the stream they shot over under the lee of an island around a rocky point and across a strait to another island beyond this they gained the ohio shore and beached the canoe ahoy there cap'n cried case pushing helen up the bank before him and she gazing upward was more than amazed to see mordaunt leaning against a tree mordaunt had you anything to do with this cried helen breathlessly i had all to do with it answered the englishman what do you mean he did not meet her gaze nor make reply but turned to address a few words in a low tone to a white man sitting on a log helen knew she had seen this person before and doubted not he was one of metzer's men She saw a rude bark lean-to, the remains of campfires, and a pack tied in blankets. Evidently, Mordaunt and his men had tarried here, awaiting such developments as had come to pass. "'You white-faced hound!' hissed Will beside himself with rage when he realized the situation. Bound as he was, he leapt up and tried to get at Mordaunt. Case knocked him on the head with the handle of his knife. Will fell with blood streaming from a cut over the temple. The dastardly act aroused all Helen's fiery courage. She turned to the Englishman with eyes ablaze. "'So, you've at last found your level, border outlaw. Kill me at once. I'd rather be dead than breathe the same air with such a coward.' "'I swore I'd have you. If not by fair means, then by foul,' he answered, with dark and haggard face." "'What do you intend to do with me now, then I'm tied?' she demanded scornfully. "'Keep you a prisoner in the woods till you consent to marry me.' Helen laughed in scorn, desperate as was the blight. Her natural courage had arisen at that cruel blow dealt her cousin, and she faced the Englishman with flashing eyes and undaunted mien. She saw he was again unsteady. And had the cough and catching breath habitual to certain men under the influence of liquor. She turned her attention to Will. He lay as he had fallen, with blood streaming over his pale face and fair hair. While she gazed at him, Case whipped out his long knife and looked up at Mordaunt. "'Captain, we'd better loosen a hatch for him,' he said brutally. "'He's dead cargo for us in, in the way.' He lowered the gleaming point upon Will's chest. Oh! oh, oh," "'Breathed Helen in horror.' She tried to close her eyes, but was so fascinated she could not. "'Get up. I'll have no murder,' ordered Mordaunt. "'Leave him here. He's not bad cut,' said the man sitting on a log. "'He'll come to after a spell. Go back to the fort and give an alarm.' "'What's that to me?' asked mordaunt sharply we shall be safe i won't have him with us because some indian or another will kill him it's not my purpose to murder anyone Ugh, grunted one of the savages and pointed eastward with his hand Hurry, long way go he said in english with the indians in the lead the party turned from the river to into the forest Helen looked back into the sandy glade and saw Will lying as they had left him, unconscious, with his hands still bound tightly behind him, and blood running over his face. Painful as was the thought of leaving him thus, it afforded her relief. She assured herself he had not been badly hurt, would recover consciousness before long, and, even bound as he was, could make his way back to the settlement. Her own situation, now that she knew Mordaunt, had instigated the abduction, did not seem hopeless. Although dreading Brandt with unspeakable horror, she did not in the least fear the Englishman. He was mad to carry her off like this into the wilderness, but would force her to do nothing. He could not keep her prisoner long while Jonathan Zane and Wetzel were free to take his trail. What were his intentions? Where was he taking her? Such questions as these, however, troubled Helen more than a little. They brought her thoughts back to the Indians leading the way with life and stealthy step. How had Mordaunt associated himself with these savages? Then, suddenly it dawned upon her that Brandt also might be in this scheme to carry her off. She scouted the idea, but it returned. Perhaps Mordaunt was only a tool. Perhaps he himself was being deceived. Helen turned pale at the very thought. She had never forgotten the strange, unreadable, yet threatening expression which Brandt had worn the day she had refused to walk with him. Meanwhile, the party made rapid progress through the forest. Not a word was spoken, nor did any noise of rustling leaves or crackling twigs follow their footsteps. The savage in the lead chose the open and less difficult ground. He took advantage of glades, mossy places, and rocky ridges. This careful choosing was evidently to avoid noise, and make the trail as difficult to follow as possible. Once he stopped suddenly and listened. Helen had a good look at the savage while he was in this position. His lean, athletic figure resembled, in its half-clothed condition, a bronze statue. His powerful visage was set, changeless like iron. His dark eyes seemed to take in all points of the forest before him. Whatever had caused the halt was an enigma to all save his red-skinned companion. The silence of the wood was the silence of the desert. No bird chirped. No breath of wind sighed in the treetops. Even the aspens remained unagitated. Pale yellow leaves sailed slowly, reluctantly, down from above. But some faint sound, something unusual, had jarred upon the exquisitely sensitive ears of the leader for with a meaning shake of the head to his followers he resumed the march in a direction at right angles with the original course. This caution and evident distrust of the forest ahead made Helen think again of Jonathan Wetzel. Those great bordermen might already be on the trail of her captors. The thought thrilled her presently she realized from another long, silent march through the forest, thickets, glades, aisles, and groves, over rock-strewn ridges, and down mossy, stoned ravines, that her strength was beginning to fail. "'I can go no further with my arms tight this way,' she declared, stopping suddenly. "Ugh!" uttered the savage before her, turning sharply. He brandished a tomahawk before her eyes. Mordaunt hurriedly set free her wrists. His pale face flushed a dark flaming red when she shrank from his touch as he were a viper. After they had traveled what seemed to Helen many miles, the vigilance of the leaders relaxed. On the banks of the willow-skirted stream the Indian guide halted them and proceeded on alone to disappear in a green thicket. Presently he reappeared and motioned for them to come on. He led the way over smooth, sandy paths between clumps of willows, into a heavy growth of alder-bushes and prickly thorns, at length to emerge upon a beautiful, grassy plot enclosed by green and yellow shrubbery. Above the stream, which cut the edge of the glade, rose a sloping wooded ridge, with huge rocks projecting here and there out of the brown forest. Several birch-bark huts could be seen, then two rough-bearded men lolling upon the grass, and beyond them a group of painted Indians a whoop so shrill so savage so exultant that it seemingly froze her blood rent the silence a man unseen before came crashing through the willows on the side of the ridge he leaped the stream with the spring of a wild horse he was big and broad with disheveled hair keen hard face and wild gray eyes helen's sight almost failed her. her head whirled dizzily It was as if her heart had stopped beating and was become a cold, dead weight, she recognized in this man, the one whom she feared most of all, Brant. He cast one glance full at her, the same threatening, cool, and evil-meaning look she remembered so well, and then engaged the Indian guide in low conversation. Helen sank at the foot of a tree, leaning against it, despite her weariness, she had maintained some spirit. Until this direful revelation broke her courage, what worse could have happened? Mordaunt had led her, for some reason that she could not divine, into the clutches of Brandt, into the power of Legget and his outlaws. But Helen was not one to remain long dispirited or hopeless. As this plot thickened, as every added misfortune weighed upon her. When just ready to give up to despair, she remembered the bordermen. Then Colonel Zane's tales of their fearless implacable pursuit when bent on rescue or revenge recurred to her, and fortitude returned. While she had life, she would hope. The advent of the party with their prisoner enlivened Leggett's gang a great giant of a man, blond-bearded and handsome, in a wild, rugged, uncouth way, a man. Helen instinctively knew to be Leggett, slapped Brandt on the shoulder. "'Damn, Roach, if she ain't a regular little daisy. Never seed such a purty lass in my life!' Brandt spoke hurriedly, and Leggett laughed. All this time Case had been sitting on the grass, saying nothing but with his little eyes watchful. Mordaunt stirred near him, his head bowed, his face gloomy. "'Say, cap'n,' i don't like this mess whispered case to his master they ain't no crew for us i know men for i've sailed the seas an you're gonna get what metz calls the double cross mordaunt seemed to arouse from his gloomy reverie he looked at brant and Legget, who were now in earnest counsel. then his eyes wandered toward helen she beckoned him to come to her Why did you bring me here? She asked. Brant understood my case. He planned this thing, and seemed to be a good friend of mine. He said, "If I once got you out of the settlement, he would give me protection until I crossed the border into Canada. There we could be married." Replied Mordaunt unsteadily. Then you meant marriage by me, if I could be made to consent. Of course, I'm not utterly vile," he replied, with face lowered in shame. Have you any idea what you've done?" "'Done? I don't understand. You have ruined yourself, lost your manhood, become an outlaw, a fugitive, made yourself the worst thing on the border, a girl thief, and all for nothing. No, I have you. You are more to me than all." "'But can't you see? You've brought me out here for Brandt!' "'My God!' exclaimed Mordaunt. He rose slowly to his feet and gazed around like a man suddenly awakened from a dream. I see it all now, miserable, drunken wretch that I am. Helen saw his face change and lighten as if a cloud of darkness had passed away from it. She understood that love of liquor had made him a party to this plot. Brandt had cunningly worked upon his weakness, proposed a daring scheme, and filled his befogged mind with hopes that, in a moment of clear-sightedness, he would have seen to be vain and impossible, and Helen understood also that the sudden shock of surprise, pain, possible fury, had sobered Mordaunt, possibly for the first time in weeks. The Englishman's face became exceedingly pale. Seating himself on a stone near case, he bowed his head, remaining silent and motionless. The conference between Leggett and Brandt lasted for some time. When it ended, the latter strode toward the motionless figure on the rock. "'Mordaunt, you and Case will do well to follow this Indian at once to the river, where you can strike for Fort Pitt Trail,' said Brent. He spoke arrogantly and authoritatively. His keen, hard face, his steely eyes bespoke the iron will and purpose of the man. Mordaunt rose with cold dignity. If he had been a dupe, he was one no longer as could be plainly read in his calm pale face the old listless unsteadiness had vanished he wore a manner of extreme quietude but his eyes were like balls of blazing blue steel mr brant i seem to have done you a service and i am no longer required he said in a courteous tone brant eyed this man but judged him wrongly an english gentleman was new to the border outlaw "'I swore the girl should be mine,' he hissed. "'Doomed men cannot be choosers,' cried Helen, who had heard him, her dark eyes burned with scorn and hatred. All the party heard her passionate outburst. Case arose as if unconcernedly, and stood by the side of his master. Leggett and the other two outlaws came up. The Indians turned their swarthy faces. "'Ah, ain't she sassy?' cried Leggett. Brandt looked at Helen, understood the meaning of her words, and laughed, but his face paled and involuntarily, his shifty glance sought the rocks and trees upon the ridge. "'You played me from the first,' asked Mudron quietly. "'I did,' replied Brandt. "'You meant nothing of your promise to help me across the border.' "'No.' "'You intended for me to shift for myself out here in the wilderness.' "'Yes, after this Indian guides you to the river trail,' said Brandt, indicating with his finger the nearest savage. "'I get what you frontier men call a double-cross?' "'That's it,' replied Brandt, with a hard laugh, in which Leggett joined. A short pause ensued. "'What will you do with the girl?' "'That's my affair.' "'Marry her?' Mordaunt's voice was low and quiet. "'No!' cried Brandt. "'She flaunted my love, and my face scorned me. "'She saw that borderman strike me, and by God I'll get even. "'I'll keep her here in the woods until I'm tired of her. "'And when her beauty fades, I'll turn her over to Leggett.'" Scarcely had the words dropped from his vile lips. When Mordaunt moved with tigerish agility, he seized a knife from the belt of one of the Indians. Die! he screamed. Brandt grasped his tomahawk. At the same instant, the man who had acted as Mordaunt's guide grasped the Englishman from behind. Brandt struck ineffectively at the struggling man. "'Fair play!' roared Case, leaping at Mordant's second assailant. His long knife sheathed its glittering length in the man's breast. Without even a groan, he dropped. "'Clear the decks!' Case yelled, sweeping round in a circle. All fell back before that whirling knife. Several of the Indians started as if to raise the rifles, but Legget's stern command caused them to desist. The Englishman and the outlaw now engaged in a fearful encounter. The practiced, rugged, frontier-desperado apparently had found his match in this pale-faced, slender man. His border skill with the hatchet seemed offset by Mordant's terrible rage. Brandt whirled and swung the weapon as he leaped around his antagonist. With his left arm, the Englishman sought only to protect his head— while with his right he brandished the knife. Whirling here and there, they struggled across the cleared space, plunging out of sight among the willows. During a moment there was a sound as of breaking branches, then a dull blow, horrible to hear, followed by a low moan and then deep silence. End of chapter 17 Chapter eighteen of The Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, mikevendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Grey, Chapter eighteen. A black weight was seemingly lifted from Helen's weary eyelids. The sun shone, the golden forest surrounded her. The brook babbled merrily. But where were the struggling, panting men? She noticed presently, when her vision had grown more clear, that the scene differed entirely from the willow glade where she had closed her eyes upon the fight. Then came the knowledge that she had fainted, and during the time of unconsciousness been moved. She lay upon a mossy mound a few feet higher than a swiftly running brook. A magnificent chestnut tree spread its leafy branches above her, directly opposite, about a hundred feet away, loomed a gray, ragged, moss-stained cliff. She noted this particularly because the dense forest encroaching to its very edge excited her admiration. Such wonderful coloring seemed unreal. Dead gold and bright red foliage flamed everywhere. Two Indians stood nearby, silent, immovable. No other of Liggett's band was visible. Helen watched the red men. Sinewy, muscular warriors they were, with bodies partially painted and long, straight hair, black as burnt wood, interwoven with bits of white bone and and plaited round waving eagle plumes. At first glance, their dark faces and dark eyes were expressive of craft, cunning, cruelty, courage all attributes of the savage. Yet wild as these savages appeared, Helen did not fear them as she did the outlaws. Brant's eyes, and legates too, when turned on her, emitted a flame that seemed to scorch and shrivel her soul. When the savages met her gaze, which was but seldom, she imagined she saw intelligence, even pity in their dusky eyes. Certain it was she did not shrink from them as from Brant, Suddenly, with a sensation of relief and joy, she remembered Mordaunt's terrible onslaught upon Brandt. Although she could not recollect the termination of that furious struggle, she did recall Brandt's scream of mortal agony and the death of the other at Case's hands. This meant, whether Brandt was dead or not, that the fighting strength of her captors had been diminished. Surely, as the sun had risen that morning, Helen believed Jonathan and Wetzel lurked on the trail of these renegades. She prayed that her courage, hope, strength might be continued. "'Ugh!' exclaimed one of the savages, pointing across the open space. A slight swaying of the bushes told that some living thing was moving among them, and an instant later the huge frame of the leader came into view. The other outlaw and case followed closely, further down the margin of the thicket the Indians appeared but without the slightest noise or disturbance of the shrubbery. It required but a glance to show Helen that Case was in high spirits. His repulsive face glowed with satisfaction. He carried a bundle which Helen saw, with a sickening sense of horror, was made up of Mordaunt's clothing. Brant had killed the Englishman. Leggett also had a package under his arm, which he threw down when he reached the chestnut-tree to draw from his pocket a long leather belt, such as travelers use for the carrying of valuables. It was evidently heavy, and the musical clink which accompanied his motion proclaimed the contents to be gold. Brandt appeared next. He was white and held his hand to his breast. There were dark stains on his hunting coat, which he removed to expose a shirt blotched with red. "'Ye ain't much hurt, I reckon,' inquired Leggett solicitously. No, but I'm bleedin' bad," replied Brant coolly. He then called an Indian and went among the willows skirting the stream. So I'm to be in this border crew?" asked Case, looking up at Legget. "Sure," replied the big outlaw. "You're a handy feller, Case, and after I break you into border ways, you will fit in here tip top. Now, nah, you'd better stick by me." when eb zane his brother jack and wenzel find out this here day's work hell will be a cool place compared with their whereabouts you'll be safe with me and this is the only place on the border i reckon where you can say your life is your own i'm your mate captain i've sailed with soldiers pirates sailors and i guess i can navigate this borderland do we miss here you didn't come far Well, I ain't particular, but I don't like eatin' with buzzards," said Legget with a grin. That's why we moved a bit. What's buzzards? Oh, maybe you'll have 'em closer, and you'd like some day, if you'd only know it. Buzzards are fine birds. Most particular birds as won't eat nothin' but flesh, and white man or Injun is pie for 'em. Captain, I've seed birds as wouldn't wait till a man was dead," said Case oh can't come no sailor yarns on this feller well now we've got their englishman's gold one or t'other of us might just as well have it all right yar, cap'n dice cards anyways so long as i knows the game here Jink, hand over your clickers and bring us a flat stone said Legget, sitting on the moss and emptying the belt in front of him case took a small bag from the dark blue jacket that had so lately covered mordaunt's shoulders and poured out its bright contents this coat ain't worth keepin he said holding it up the garment was rent and slashed and under the left sleeve was a small blood-stained hole where one of brant's blows had fallen hello what's this muttered the sailor feeling in the pocket of the jacket blast my timbers he held up a small, silver-mounted whiskey flask, unscrewed the lid, and lifted the vessel to his mouth. "'I'm kind of thirsty myself,' suggested Liggett "'Captain, a nip, and no more,' Case replied, holding the flask to Liggett's lips. The outlaw called Jenks now returned with a flat stone which he placed between the two men. The Indians gathered around. With greedy eyes, they bent their heads over the gamblers, and watched every movement with breathless interest. At each click of the dice or clink of gold, they uttered deep exclamations. "'Looks again, you captain!' said Case, skillfully shaking the ivory cubes. "'Ain't I got eyes!' growled the outlaw. Steadily his pile of gold diminished, and darker grew his face. "'Captain!' I'm a bad wind to draw, Case rejoined, drinking again from the flask. His naturally red face had become livid, his skin moist and his eyes wild with excitement. Hello, if them dice wasn't jenks and I hadn't played a four with them, I'd swear they's loaded. You ain't insinuating nothin', Captain, inquired Case softly, hesitating with the dice in his hands, his evil eyes glinting at legget "'Nah, you're fair enough,' growled the leader. "'My tough luck!' The game progressed with infrequent runs of fortune for the outlaw, and presently every piece of gold lay in a shining heap before the sailor. Clean busted!' exclaimed Leggett in disgust. "'Can't you find nothing more?' asked Case. The outlaw's bold eyes wandered here and there until they rested upon their prisoner i'll play their lass against your pile of gold he growled best two throws out in three see here she's as much mine as brant's me can have my pile and huh? i'll go you all right time better give me back what you win replied legget gruffly she's a trim little craft no mistake said case critically surveying helen all right captain ah uh, sportin blood an i'll bet yer throw first legget won the first cast and case was second with deliberation the outlaw shook the dice in his huge fist and rattled them out upon the stone oh he cried in delight he had come within one of the highest score possible case nonchalantly flipped the little white blocks the indians crowded forward their dusky eyes shining Leggett swore in a terrible voice, which re-echoed from the stony cliff. The sailor was victorious. The outlaw got up, kicked the stone and dice in the brook, and walked away from the group. He strode to and fro under one of the trees. Gruffly he gave an order to the Indians. Several of them began at once to kindle a fire. Presently he called Jinx, who was fishing the dice out of the brook, and began to converse earnestly with him making fierce gestures and casting lowering glances at the sailor. Case was too drunk now to see that he had incurred the anonymity of the outlaw leader. He drank the last of the rum and tossed the silver flask to an Indian, who received the present with every show of delight. Case then, with the slow, uncertain movements of a man whose mind is befogged, began to count his gold but only to gather up a few pieces when they slipped out of his trembling hands to roll on the moss. Laboriously, seriously, he kept at it with the doggedness of a drunken man. Apparently he had forgotten the others. Failing to learn the value of the coins by taking up each in turn, he arranged them in several piles, and began to estimate his wealth in sections. In the meanwhile, Helen, who had not failed to take in the slightest detail of what was going on, Saw that a plot was hatching, which boded ill to the sailor. Moreover, she heard Legget and Jenks whispering, "I can take him from right here, twixt his eyes," said Jenks softly, and tapped his rifle significantly. "Well, go ahead. Only I'd rather have it done quieter," answered Legget. "We're yet a long ways, near thirty miles from my camp, and there's no tellin' who's in their woods." But we've got to get rid of their fresh sailor, and there's no sure way. Cautiously cocking his rifle, Jenks deliberately raised it to his shoulder. One of the Indian Sentinels, who stood near at hand, sprang forward and struck up the weapon. He spoke a single word to Leggett, pointed to the woods above the cliff, and then resumed his statue-like attitude. I told you, Jenks, that wouldn't do it. The Redskins sent something in the woods and there's an engine i never seed fooled we mustn't make a noise take your knife and tomahawk crawl down below the edge of the bank and slip up on him i'll give half their gold for the job jenks buckled his belt more tightly gave one threatening glance at the sailor and slipped over the bank the bed of the brook lay about six feet below the level of the ground This afforded an opportunity for the outlaw to get behind Case without being observed. A moment passed. Jenks disappeared round a bend in the stream. Presently his grizzled head appeared above the bank. He was immediately behind the sailor, but still some thirty feet away. This ground must be covered quickly and noiselessly. The outlaw began to crawl. In his right hand he grasped a tomahawk and between his teeth was a long knife. He looked like a huge, yellow bear. The savages, with the exception of the sentinel, who seemed absorbed in the dense thicket on the cliff, sat with their knees between their hands, watching the impending tragedy. Nothing but the merest chance or some extraordinary intervention could avert Case's doom. He was gloating over his gold. The creeping outlaw made no more noise than a snake. Nearer and nearer he came his sweaty face shining in the sun, his eyes tigerish, his long body slipping silently over the grass. At length he was within five feet of the sailor. His knotty hands were dug into the sward as he gathered energy for a sudden spring. At that very moment Case, with his hand on his knife, rose quickly and turned around. The outlaw, discovered in the act of leaping, had no alternative and he did, like a panther. The little sailor stepped out of line with remarkable quickness, and as the yellow body whirled past him his knife flashed blue bright in the sunshine. Jenks fell forward, his knife buried in the grass beneath him, and his outstretched hand still holding the tomahawk. "Eh, "'Trying to double-cross me for my gold!' muttered the sailor, sheathing his weapon. He never looked to see, whether or no, his blow had been fatal these border fellers might think a man as sails the seas can't handle a knife he calmly began gathering up his gold evidently indifferent to further attack helen saw leggett raise his own rifle but only to have it struck aside as had jenks this time the savage whispered earnestly to leggett who called the other indians around him the sentinel's low throaty tones mingled with the soft babbling of the stream No sooner had he ceased speaking than the effect of his words showed how serious had been the information—warning or advice. The Indians cast furtive glances towards the woods. Two of them melted like shadows into the red and gold thicket. Another stealthily slipped from tree to tree until he reached the open ground, then dropped into the grass, and was seen no more until his dark body rose under the cliff. He stole along the green-stained wall, climbed a rugged corner and vanished amid the dense foliage. Helen felt that she was almost past discernment or thought. The events of the day, succeeding one another so swiftly and fraught with panic, had, despite her hope and fortitude, reduced her to a helpless condition of piteous fear. She understood that the savages scented danger or had, in their mysterious way, received intelligence such as rendered them wary and watchful come on now and make no noise said liggett to case bring the girl and see that she steps light ah captain replied the sailor where's brant he'll be coming soon's his cut's stopped bleeding i reckon he's weak yet case gathered up his goods and tucking it under his arm grasped helen's arm she was leaning against a tree and when he pulled her she wrenched herself free raising with difficulty his disgusting touch and revolting face had revived her sensibilities. Here you can begin duty by carrying that,' said Case, thrusting the package into Helen's arms. She let it drop without moving a hand. "'I'm running this ship. You belong to me,' hissed Case. And then he struck her on the head. Helen uttered a low cry of distress and half staggered against a tree. The sailor picked up the package. This time she took it, trembling with horror. "'That's right, now. Give her Cap'n a kiss,' he leered and jostled against her. Helen pushed him violently. With agonized eyes, she appealed to the Indians. They were engaged, tying up their packs. Leggett looked on with a lazy grin. "Uh "'Uh-oh,' breathed Helen, as Case seized her again. She tried to scream, but could not make a sound. The evil eyes, the beastly face, transfixed her with terror. Case struck her twice, then roughly pulled her toward him. Half fainting, unable to move, Helen gazed at the heated, bloated face approaching hers. When his coarse lips were within a few inches of her lips, something hot hissed across her brow. Following so closely as to be an accompaniment rang out with singular clearness the sharp crack of a rifle case's face changed the hot surging flush faded the expression became shaded dulled into vacant emptiness his eyes rolled wildly then remained fixed with a look of dark surprise he stood upright an instant swayed with the regular poise of a falling oak and then plunged backward to the ground his face ghastly and livid, took on the awful calm of death. A very small hole, reddish-blue round the edges, dotted the center of his temple. Leggett stared aghast at the dead sailor. Then he possessed himself of the bag of gold. Save me their trouble, he muttered, giving Case a kick. The Indians glanced at the little figure, then out into the flaming thickets, each savage sprang behind a tree with incredible quickness. Leggett saw this, and grasping Helen, he quickly led her within cover of the chestnut. Brandt appeared with his Indian companion, and both leaped to shelter behind a clump of birches near where Leggett stood. Brant's hawk eyes flashed upon the dead Jenks and Case. Without asking a question, he seemed to take in the situation. He stepped over and grasped Helen by the arm. "'Who killed Case?' he asked in a whisper, staring at the little blue hole in the sailor's temple. No one answered. The two Indians who had gone into the woods to the right of the stream now returned. Hardly were they under the trees with their party, when the savage who had gone off alone arose out of the grass, in the left of the brook, took it with a flying leap, and darted into their midst. He was the sentinel who had knocked up the weapons thereby saving case's life twice he was lithe and supple but not young his grave shadowy-lined iron visage showed the traces of time and experience all gazed at him at once whose wisdom was greater than theirs old horse said brant in english haven't i seen bullet holes like this the chippewa bent over case and then slowly straightened his tall form "'Deathwind,' he replied, answering in the white man's language. His Indian companions uttered low, plaintive murmurs, not signifying fear so much as respect. Brandt turned as pale as the clean birch bark on the tree near him. The gray flare of his eyes gave out a terrible light of certainty and terror. "Legget, you needn't try to hide your trail,' he hissed. And it seemed as if there was a bitter, reckless pleasure." in these words. Then the Chippewa glided into the low bushes bordering the creek. Legget followed him, with Brandt leading Helen. And the other Indians brought up the rear, each one sending wild, savage glances into the dark surrounding forest. End of Chapter 18